Welcome to The Radical Therapist. We are now at episode number 97. I'm Dr. Chris Hoff, and as always, thanks for listening, and I'm really excited to bring you our first podcast of 2022, and we're going to start with a bang because we have uh, the wonderful Julie Tilson, uh, and we're going to be talking about her new book, uh, Queering Your Therapy Practice, and among other things. So uh, before we get to Julie, just some quick announcements. There's new videos on the Radical Therapist YouTube channel. If you have not been there yet, please go check it out. Um, I'm going to try to be really more consistent on that, on everything that I'm doing. I'm going to try to, I've simplified my life a little bit in, uh, as of late. And so I'm going to try to be more consistent with a lot of the radical therapist stuff. So if you find it of value and you like uh, what I'm putting out there, uh, please come find me on all the social medias, Instagram at the radical therapist, and of course the YouTube channel and on Facebook too. And uh, that way you can kind of stay up to what's going on. So, uh, Anyway, let's get right to it. This is, uh, I'm excited. First podcast of the year and really excited to have Julie Tilson here. Uh, a little bit about Julie. Julie Tilson, PhD, is the author of Queering Your Therapy Practice, Queer Theory, Narrative Therapy, and Imagining New Identities. Narrative Approaches, another, another book, Narrative Approaches to Youth Work, Conversational Skills for a Critical Practice, and Therapeutic Conversations with Queer Youth, Transcending Homonormativity, and Constructing Preferred Identities. I have all three of those books. I highly recommend. And of course, she's uh, also written a variety of professional articles and book chapters, many which I have cited in my own work. Uh, she's core faculty in Fairfield University Sexual and Gender Minority Health Counseling Program, community faculty in the Youth Studies Program at the University of Minnesota, and an associate of the Taos Institute, and a recipient of the Minnesota Association of Marriage and Family Therapy Distinguished Service Award. Her work is featured in several counselor training videos produced by Alexander Street Press and Sage UPG Media. Julie is a hardcore fan of the University of Minnesota Gophers women's hockey team and likes drinking cold press. She has a greyhound named Feet and a cat Presto who really is a wizard. And the sorting hat has decidedly placed Julie in the house of Ravenclaw. And uh, we'll let that pass because I'm actually in the house of Slytherin, but um, but that's okay. Uh, so without further ado, uh, let's meet Julie. Hi, Julie. Welcome to the Radical Therapist Podcast. It's great to have you here. Well, thanks, Chris. I really appreciate the invitation. Yep. Um, okay, uh, let's get started. You, you have a new book out, Queering Your Therapy Practice, Queer Theory, Narrative Therapy, and Imagining New Identities. Uh, and everybody should get this book, and I will have links for it in the show notes, so uh, you'll be able to get that easily. So anyway, but uh, I guess my first question I wanted to ask is maybe we could start by defining queer and how you are using it in this book. Yeah, I think that's a really, a really good question and a re very reasonable place to start. Um, <clears throat> as happens with language and with most words you know there's there's a history to the word queer and um you know i think knowing the fast and furious history of it is important um you know initially it was a word that wasn't as imbued with perhaps uh, uh the weightiness of negative connotation as it eventually came to have it was 
something used more to uh, describe people uh, and maybe experiences or, or things that were odd or eccentric or unusual. Uh, and then it came to be a particular epithet against what we would you know, now call gay, gay and lesbian people, particularly gay men. Um, and then it started changing. Uh, you know, when you think about in the 80s during the Reagan era and uh, that administration's lack of response to the AIDS crisis, what you saw is groups like Queer Nation um, and ACT UP the groups that really took the AIDS epidemic into their hands with uh, very creative and radical activism, using the word queer uh, as a way to organize, I guess we could think of it as, as a reverse discourse, um, but they really organized around it. And, and that was even controversial within what we would call the gay and lesbian community uh, that um, maybe more normative gay folks weren't very comfortable with it. And so it really had an edge. And then we see later in the nineties and the two thousands with folk, with uh, um, shows like Queer as Folk and the first elaboration of Queer Eye, you know, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. It was becoming an umbrella term and sort of taking a little bit of the punch out of it or the edge out of it. Um, and, and so I think that there's sort of these parallel tracks in which that word is used. One is an umbrella term more and more it's used as an umbrella term. Uh, and there is still a way which people will use it also, and in some contexts, with that edge, with that intentional political edge. So I think it's important for people to, 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 to hold, hold that history and that knowledge of that it can be used in more than one way, and that people sometimes, Queer folks will go back and forth and using it as an uh, umbrella term, as well as meaning something uh, more radical or, or edgy or critical. In terms of how I'm using it in the book, I, I am using it both ways, but mostly um, as a more critical political, with, an, with a political intention. Uh, and also part of that then is taking the word and moving from queer as uh, an adjective to queering as a verb, which is, you know, uh, it's a, a troubling of uh, and turning on its side any kind of conventions and norms. It's sort of occupying a betweener space, sort of between social and asocial. Um, it's... Also not necessary, this is where the using in both ways, it, it is an identity, but it's also really a critique of identities, which I think is super important, particularly, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a, a queer cis person, queer cis woman, but I think it's particularly important for cisgender and straight folks to understand that the idea of queering, whether we're talking about identities or art or professionalism as therapists, anything is always emergent and, and shifting sort of this kind of constant state of liminality or, or possibility rather than looking for what's the right thing to say or what's the right thing to do. So I know that that's starting to get a little further away from those definitions. Um, but I think it's important to, to stand in that 
complex, uncertain space when um, engaging with this language and in particular the way I'm trying to use it. No, I, I love that. And I, I, you have me thinking about liminality and, <clears throat> excuse me, something I've been thinking a lot about. And, um, and we live in a world that is constantly calling us to certainty or, you know, or especially in our field, you know, that we have to have the answer. And we're going to talk a little bit about this. You do take this on in your book. But I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, what are, you know, what are your thoughts about how do we support people and, and, you know, in staying in those liminal spaces or like, I know it's not easy, but, um, but it's something I'm thinking a lot about these days and you really tapped into it. Yeah, I think it's gotten only harder because of, well, just the despair we're all living in right now. And and I say that as a, yeah. you know, very privileged, um, you know, white person in a house <laughs> um, with the heat on and food in my belly. Um, but there's a lot of despair and, and I think... Um, Maybe it's not obvious, but it seems to me the more things are uncertain and the more we're despairing, the more we want, yeah. you know, some, some certainty. And yeah, how do we do that? You know, I, 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 I you know, I think there's, you know, the old Harleen Anderson slow down to hurry up. Mm. I think mm. <laughs> that, that, to, and, and I think that, um, for me, it's first witnessing whatever the despair or uncertainty or anxiousness about that uncertainty is and not wanting to get past it quickly. And so it's, it, for me, it's a both and with folks um, wanting to witness that and understand it um, and, and then unpack it a bit and ask some questions about it, you know, both how is it a response to what's going on so that we're not locating it, you know, it's not collapsing on their identity or located in their body, um, you know, and asking to, to, to asking those kinds of response based questions to create some space between them and that experience. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, asking about values, you know, some conventional narrative practices um, and then asking, you know, in addition to what it's constraining, what it might make possible, because I think that I think there's difference in being confident about something and being certain about something, you know, I want, I want to experience some confidence. I want folks yeah. to experience confidence. Yeah. I but like I that distinction. Yeah. 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 Certainty closes off possibilities. And I think particularly now when things are, there's a lot of despair. I am interested in, you know, what might be, what are the possibilities here? You know, what, what's the call to action? So I know those are broad brush strokes in that as in response to the question, how do we do that? But outside of, you know, a, a more particular yeah. situation, yeah. I don't know that I can Yeah, say. and I don't know if that was a fair question, but I mean, <laughs> I just wanted to talk about it because it is something I, yeah, yeah. I, I'm thinking a lot about. And um, and I think it has, it, it has a lot to do with the way through the times we are in. So, uh, okay, so... Uh, Maybe we could talk, and this is another big question, sorry, but, you know, uh, you know, maybe you could say a little bit about what is queer theory, and I know that's big, but uh, yeah. how are you thinking about it? Right, right. That, that's a more fair question, because there are a <laughs> lot of queer theories, none of which I'm a real expert in, some of which I traffic in and have, you know, studied 
Um, and, and connecting it to that previous big question, I would say <laughs> I do see queer theory as a resource for these times because the stuff that got us into these times is not what's going to get us out of these times. So, uh, you know, sort of the TLDR on uh, <laughs> the queer theory would be, it's a set of critical practices that help us interrogate um, identity and in particular in relationship to gender and sex and sexuality, but not exclusively those things, because those things always come um, attached to bodies that experience other social locations and experiences in the world. And so for me, queer theory is asking a lot of questions about how power operates in particular, you know, discursive power, how, how, um, you know, who has the authority to make these sorts of declarations about certain kinds of people, you know, what are the effects of that, who's included and excluded, um, and things like that. Yeah, um, you spoke of, you're speaking of discourses, and I guess uh, you write how normative discourses are relevant when addressing matters of gender, sexuality, and identity. And you also talk about how you use deconstruction as a tool to examine these these, these discourses and, and their implications. And I'm wondering if you could, for our audience, just kind of share a little bit about that and how you do that. How I do that, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, part of what I think about is, is sort of the myth of liberal humanism that, um, you know, we're we're all the authors of our own story and we get to do all this stuff on our own. And, you know, some, somewhere between your spleen and your liver, liver, you'll find your true self. And part, I have really bad anatomical geography. So if those <laughs> things aren't anywhere close to each other, I just mean that, that we're not, we're, we're, we're not inside of our skin bound container. <laughs> and, and so, you know, when you ask about, uh, normative discourses or, or discourse, you know, to me, di what I'm talking about with discourse are these cultural stories, the like the meta narratives, right? And and those very much shape and constrain who we are. So the liberal humanist story that we are the authors of our own story it ignores that that our individual stories and understandings of ourselves happen in relationship to those larger cultural stories. And again, shaped by and, and constrained by them. And that's particularly true for folks who live outside of those cultural stories. Hmm. And even in living outside of them, they're defined by them because the outsideness, the resistance to them, the otherness is in relationship to the norms. Right. And so that's sort of like the, the, the background, you know, what's operating for yeah. me. Yeah. And in terms of you asked like how that like deconstruction, um, you know, for me, that's, that's, you know, a, a process of asking questions that we're not supposed to ask <clears throat> or that we don't think to ask hmm. because that's the other part of discourse. It's, it's everywhere, but invisible and people aren't noticing that. And so even asking um, 
you know, I'm thinking of in the book, one of the vignettes um, is uh, actually a cis straight guy who had kind of had sexual desires and preferences that stood in contrast to dominating ideas of masculinity. And he was really troubled by it. Hmm. Um, and so like asking questions like, you know, who, who gets to set the standards for how man, men are supposed to experience desire and pleasure and, and be a sexual partner. And, you know, how is that surveilled or policed or punished? And, you know, every man, every cis straight man I know has a story of being surveilled, policed and punished anytime they stepped even a little bit away from those cultural constraints of masculinity. And so for me, it's asking those kinds of questions. It, it, am I answering the question? That, yeah, no, that's, that's, okay. that's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, that's wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Uh, thank you. Um, and I'm asking a series of big questions, so I apologize. <laughs> uh, but um you also, so this is important, you also ex are critical and ex you examine capitalism and are critical of it. And, and of course, power, uh, you, you examine closely in your work. And um, can you say a little bit of what, why this is important? Oh, boy, why <laughs> it's important to examine power and why... And why you're I, critical of I capitalism and its effects. Capitalism and neoliberalism? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sorry, what was that, Chris, we're talking? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, neoliberalism, capitalism, and power are part and parcel of the work that you do. And um, to somebody who's not, you know, examining those things, why do you think it's important? Um, I, I, I think it's an, an ethical imperative that we understand that we are all at least those of us in the United States and North America, um, I would include my Canadian colleagues and friends at this point, <laughs> um, that um, is, I spoke earlier about guiding, you know, cultural stories or meta narratives. I think of capitalism as the broad, you know, the biggest meta narrative under which the other big ones like white supremacy, patriarchy, you know, um, all those things fall. And if it hasn't been laid bare and apparent over this last going on, what is it, two years yeah, of yeah. the pandemic, uh, for those of us in this country, how capitalism and in particular neoliberalism is, um, you know, this, the kind of current iteration, <laughs> the engine of it these days um, is affecting us. I, you know, I don't know, is that the red pill or the blue pill? I, I just, it's like, it's like, I, um, I, I, uh, I, I would be surprised. Um, and, and I think that it's important to understand that this is not just an economic system. This is a system that very much shapes identities, whether it's defining us as consumers or vendors or someone in the gig economy, because it's it's one of the un, un, the questions we don't think to ask is why am I working to death? Why you know um, why did I just have to go spend all this money on rapid tests so I could see my niece for half an hour? Um, you know these sorts of things, and I think therapists 
unwittingly mostly participate in the system in the ways in which we think we might be helping people kind of like, um, you know, maybe uh, a therapist in, in the military who is supposed to get people ready to go back and serve. I think that's what we end up doing a lot is we get people ready to go back and work and consume and productive. we don't realize that that's on their backs and it's on our backs. Um, and so that's why I take up capitalism and neoliberalism. That, that was the question, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, because those are very much shaping our experiences. And um, there's also a way which therapy is, is, is a tool of that now. Yeah. Uh, if nothing else, and how you know the individual is so central in neoliberalism, and so now people are taking it upon themselves. You know, it's this privatization of social problems and the burden of individualism. People are so taking it on themselves to fix all these things about them, but it ain't them. Right. It's that that stuff out there. Right. So that's where I see some of the connections and the uh, between neoliberalism and what we do. And um, like I said, I think it's an ethical imperative for us to understand that. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, so narrative practice is kind of a thread throughout the book, right? And uh, I guess I'm wondering just kind of historically what drew you to narrative practice and why do you find it so effective in the work that you do? Yeah, yeah, narrative therapy is it's in the title of the book. So <laughs> I just, uh, um, what drew me? Well, you know, I can tell you that I, I certainly came to being a therapist probably uh, a little in an unusual path, uh, and also reluctantly. And I still consider myself a reluctant therapist, and, and for no other reasons most recently for what I just got done talking about. Right, right. Um, but uh, some of my early mentors were feminist family therapists, um, you know, who had studied with some of um, kind of the grandmas of family therapy, you know, it's studied with Peggy Papp and Olga Silverstein. And, oh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and, and so I was fortunate enough to have those be some of my early mentors and supervisors. And, and, and I think that would have been the, that was probably the only way that I would have continued in the field is because I was kind of brought up with a real uh, politicized, you know, an intentionally politicized understanding of what's happening. And, and so um, that was sort of a groundwork. And then it was, I was, gosh, what was it like 1994, 95? And I was working in a day treatment and uh, one of the other therapists there had just picked up a copy of narrative means and, and Tim was going through this and we were doing a lot of in-home therapy together because they would dispatch us to, to these houses <clears throat> um, in, in partners. Hmm. And so Tim and I, I started reading this book with this, this guy I was working with back in 94, 95. And, and the first thing that really took us was the letters. Hmm. And so Tim and I started just on our own. Our supervisor <laughs> had no idea what the fuck we were doing. Um, we started we started writing letters um, to families mm. and um, 
and it was just sort of this practice we cultivated our, on our own. And, 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 and um, I think that idea of continuing the conversation and um, offering documents and counter documents to folks um, really excited me because uh, um, it, it, it was acknowledging, in part, it was acknowledging some gaps in practice, you know, I that would think of things later, or I wanted to make sure someone that I was understanding someone and I could recapture things. So that those are the things that I think first invited me into narrative was someone reading a book, and I was partnering with him. And we kind of started teaching ourselves through letter writing and then um, also having the foundation of feminist family therapy and seeking a uh, politicized practice. Wonderful. Okay. Um, uh, we've been talking for a while and I've wanted to get, get you on this podcast for this few years ago. And it, I think the first time was you came to LA and you gave a talk on essentially uh, ethical positioning and kind of from a postmodern perspective, I think is how it was titled back then, but I was really struck with your ideas around ethical positioning in, in, in contrast to um, conventional codes of conduct. And uh, so this is kind of a big question. I know you do a lot of work in this area, but I was wondering if you could share with our audience, you know, just um, your ideas around queer understandings of relationships and community support and our ethical positioning and practices that differ from those of conventional codes of conduct. Yeah. So, yeah. No, thanks for that. I mean, that, that is something I've been thinking about for a while. And, you know, I, I in a, and I'll speak to this separately, the, the queering part, mm -hmm. um, but I also draw a lot on the work uh, you know, one of my mentors, Sheila McNamee, uh, you know, relational responsibility and some ideas from constructionist practice in terms of looking at, um, you know, local understandings of ethics and morality and understanding that there's more than one perspective. Um, I draw on early work of Jill and Jean, uh, you know, Jill, Jill Friedman and Jean Combs, uh, I, you know, it, 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 for me, it really stands the test of the, what, 30 years of time or so since they wrote that the idea of uh, ethics as questions, interrogating our own practice and asking questions of our practice, which I think I would say is a querying. <laughs> um, uh, with, because really to me what so much, when I go into you know consultation at an agency or something and they're bringing up an ethical matter, it's really a cover your ass matter totally. it, that, that, there's been this like mission drift from ethics or this conflation of ethics with legality. And not that that isn't important. Do I tell people to document the hell out of something if something sketchy is going on? Absolutely. I mean, we live in that reality. And in terms of our accountability to the communities or the folks we work with, that ain't it. That's not it. And and so that's why I think these ideas from Sheila's work um, and these uh, of uh, understanding local realities and local understandings is really important because all of our professional codes of conduct, you know, they're monolithic. They're this 
big, broad brushstroke, one size fits all, literally constructed miles away from a conversational moment. Um, and so it's not that I throw that out, but it's, you know, bringing it down to a level that doesn't need to be on a pedestal and then bringing in other ideas, other perspectives, um, uh, you know, particulars of a context and, 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 and considering that all together. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In terms of the first part of your question around queer understandings, um, I don't think this is really different from any small, you know, affinity group, cultural group, um, that there's different understandings. You know, we could look at a, a cultural or an ethnic group or a religious group, um, you know, and, and there's different understandings of ethics. And one of the understandings generally, again, there's no monolithic queer community by any means, um, and I'm going to say that louder for the straight and cis folks in the back. There's no <laughs> monolithic queer community. Um, is, is that this idea that we have professionally of, you know, what all of our professional boards now call multiple relationships, what was historically called dual relationships. And I think people still often still use that yeah, language. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Is that your yeah, experience? Yeah, here they do for sure. Yeah, even though I think everybody's code says multiple when you when you read them, um, it, it is problematic. Uh, and and even those codes have softer language. And I, and I cover this in my book. Even though even all the codes, whether it's AAMFT, APA, NASW, um, they have softer language around this. There's sort of a little bit of wiggle room for context. And I remember from 5 million years ago in graduate school, you know, the context that was always given was if you live in a rural community, right. which I think that is different now with the, you know, the proliferation of us doing telehealth, yep. right? Yep. Um, there are more uh, circumstances that, invite us to question that that issue of multiple or dual relationships outside of a rural context and queer relationships queer understandings of relationships are often much more complex and and um, a bit messy and the other part of this is that the reality is while this prohibition against multiple relationships is supposed to protect clients from sketchy therapist behavior. Um, sketchy therapist behavior still happens. Yeah. And it usually happens behind a closed door because it's a very privatized endeavor. And so prohibiting us from having perhaps a relationship with someone in the community and seeing them in therapy, that doesn't keep, sketchy therapists or even not sketchy therapists, but people who are in a circumstance and in a slippery slope and do things they don't want to do that doesn't prevent it. And so what I'm arguing and what I write about in the book is that in fact, done right, having other connections 
builds in some safety because you're accountable to community, you're accountable to more people, mm-hmm. and you're constantly negotiating and talking about how the power is operating in that therapeutic relationship. So for me, you know, some examples I give in the book, um, you know, I have on more than one occasion been approached by someone who I have maybe a professional relationship with to meet with their kid, or I see them in community, you know, whether it's back in the day when we used to go to, you know, social events or arts events, now it's mostly actions at, you know, um, point, you know, that to, to meet with them or meet with, meet with their kid. And I am open to having that conversation. Um, and, you know, I do it. I, 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 I say, well, I want to have this consultant. So I'll, I'll invite someone else that, that is there to help hold me accountable to these folks. And we'll negotiate what and how we're going to interact if we do see each other on the streets or in the wild somewhere. And so that's, I'm, talking a lot. Am I answering the question? Yeah, totally. And yes. And I also wanted to ask, because in the book, you caution, you know, people that I've I've noticed, you know, come to postmodern practice, and sometimes it's like, oh, we'll throw it all. (laughs) You kind of mentioned that sometimes you throw it all out, but you also caution against relativizing or anything goes. And I I wonder if you could just share a little bit about that, too. 100%. Yeah, Yeah. I think that that's a... um, that's a misread of this and a misread of constructionist ideas and and an understandable one. Um, But I I think for me, it's not that anything goes, it's nothing goes unquestioned. So rather than anything goes, it's that we're going to constantly be asking these questions about the practices or what we're talking about or what we're proposing and how, what are the effects and on whom how is power operating? Um, what does it make possible? What does it constrain? These sorts of things. And that in this misreading, it, it, you know, it, it's one of the things, I think it's akin to the misread uh, of social construction when we say, you know, that gender is a construct, race is a construct. Oh, well, then it doesn't exist. Well, no, the effects of it do. And so I think one of the misreasons when people say, well, this is just relativizing. When I say everything's a story and that everybody's got a perspective on something, that doesn't mean I hold all stories equally and that everybody's perspective has the same weight because I am interested in what are the effects on whom, at whose expense, who benefits, And so that's the difference. It's the power analysis and attention to that. That's wonderful. I love that. And I I love the idea of anything goes in contrast to nothing goes unquestioned. I'm going to hold hold on to that. So thank you for that. Um, Okay. Uh, So you also write how we have a cultural and professional, and I think this is important for especially us cis Therapist, you also write how we have a cultural and professional infatuation with the idea, ideal of being yourself, and and how this can obscure the unique complexities with any person's coming out and being out. And I wonder if you could share about that, because oftentimes that seems like that's off everybody's end goal, 
And I think yeah. you, you are you are actually questioning that. The end goal being coming out, being out, or okay, sure. Yeah, right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, because I think that there's that this is also not just about coming out, and particularly um, when you know for cis straight folks, um, you know who believe their gender identity and sexual orientation to be static yeah. and fixed. Right. Um, that again, going back to first part of our conversation is that, you know, queering is about, you know, becoming and unfolding and generativity and uncertainty and, you know, uh, liminality. And um, so uh, in terms of coming out though, um, I think that, well, one, I think a lot of really well-intentioned straight and cis therapists really focus, um, you know, what their practice with queer trans folks might be is on coming out and a lot of people are going to come to you and they're already very well out. <laughs> so they may not need you to do that. Um, the other thing is, you know, often it's just sort of, it becomes this binary uh, coming out or not being out and it ignores uh, complexities and nuances, particularly those of context. And then it's, you know, such as safety family relationships, and then, you know, the intersectionality that people live, you know, in particular cultures or particular places uh, that for us white folks, despite, you know, the, 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 the right-wing tropes about family values here, we expend people, white folks expend relationships pretty quickly. And, um, you know, the idea of cutting someone off to be yourself that's where that whole stuff, you know, the essential self, you know, uh, is, is it takes pre precedent as well as neoliberal constructions of individualism, of individuals, right? right? So I think in terms of the application for practice that we have to be really careful and linger a bit with people around if, if there is a question about coming out or being out, um, you know, what do they want to do with that? And, and, and what will that make possible? And when people maybe are cautious, <clears throat> uh, it, that, you know, I read about this in the book is that these are practices of protection and what it's typically cast as, is you're not being true to yourself mm -hmm. or you're not being, you know, these whole like truth games, which people would call truth games. Right. Um, and it's not about honesty. And, you know, in the book, I think I have a conversation with a young person where I really kind of break that down with them. Um, you know, cause most people don't want to be liars and they're not trying to be liars. And really the dishonest question it, it exists in the world or among straight and cis people about who are you and, and um, why aren't you showing me? So, it's, you know, my, my hope, my invitation to people is that you slow down, you consider the complexities, you consider um, what people are doing to keep themselves safe enough. Um, and, and that uh, coming out is, isn't necessarily an end point. Um, it's, and, and that isn't necessarily everything or anything that you, is really what you need to be taking up. Mm -hmm. um, and so, 
Um, I just think it, it gets to be this place that a lot of stress and system straight therapists land because they think they know that that's the thing they're supposed to do. Right. I also, you, you write about, I think this is important and it was, I, I think, uh, and I, I really appreciated it. Um, cause I, I think I was kind of in this position you write about, well, I'll talk about, you write about moving from sex positive to sex critical. Mm. And uh, that was new to me. And so I was thinking, you know, I was, you know, oh, sex, being sex positive or whatever, but I really I liked your, um, your take. And I'm wondering if you'd share, share it with us now. Well, my take is absolutely the take of um, Lisa Downing, who actually coined the term sex critical. And also I rely a lot on Meg John Barker, who is um, a sex educator and psychologist in England. Um, and basically it's an invitation um, to break the binary of sex positivity and sex negativity. And I want to be really clear. And I know I do this in the book that, you know, Gil Rubin, uh, it was her seminal work, uh, Thinking Sex in what, 1984, yeah. um, mm-hmm. it, where we, yeah, 1984, why do I know these random things? Um, Gail Rubin introduced us to this idea of sex positivity. And that was tremendously important, particularly, I think, for women and queer and trans folks um, to, to make visible, you know, not so-called non-normative sexual practices. Um, and so that has carried us a long way. And what Downing is pointing out in her coining this term sex critical is that it's created a binary sex positivity, sex negativity. And we know that binaries are problematic because there's lots of space between them and outside of them that aren't accounted for nuances and, and complexities and other possibilities outside of, um, you know, whatever kind of um, paradigm that binary creates. And one of the ways that binary has really been showing up, and I've certainly noticed this the last few years in my practice, is there's this kind of uh, like glorification uh, of being sex positive that lacks, you know, a criticality to it and can end up, um, um, you know, being judgmental or harmful uh, to folks who might want to pump the brakes on something sexually uh, without, um, you know, thinking about what it means for them. And so by taking a more critical practice, you know, I, whenever I think about doing anything critically, it, it doesn't mean I'm throwing it out. It means I'm raising some eyebrows. <laughs> I'm going, hmm, okay. And I want to I ask some questions. And so rather than glorifying all sexual practices, always of um, participating sexually, we want to ask some questions uh, about how powers operate in that particular relationship, um, what this makes possible for each partners, all the partners and the relationship, um, and, and be open to people can, can, can say no or not that, and that doesn't mean they're sex negative. So that's what that is about for me. Yeah, that's great, and 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 very needed in in the conversation. So thank you. Finally, um, 
I guess this is my last, second to last question. Okay. Uh, you write about deprivatizing our practices, oh. and I'm wondering if you could, I, I thought that was great. I wonder if you could share with our audience that, that practice. Yeah. Um, you know, so many people that I talk with, regardless of, you know, what the presenting concern is or what they say, the problem is, if, you know, they've come in diagnosing themselves, you know, or whatever. Um, I don't have to scratch the surface very far. And I say almost everybody in some way talks about some kind of version of being isolated, disconnected, disbelonged. And, you know, so for me, you know, well, back in the day, sitting in a room with one or two or three people, you know, a family, or whatever, with a closed door now s- sitting over a screen with one or two people, um, that doesn't seem to fix that problem. And s- see our previous conversation about neoliberalism <laughs> and, and therapists yeah, right. unwitting. So, you know, and I always tell people when they first call me, my job is to get out of your life. And that doesn't mean that I'm not going to be available for you forever or whatever. But um, I really want to see my me as more of an ancillary and maybe like a hub um, to, to creating meaningful connections. And so deep privatizing our practices for me can be everything from collective practices like you know, inviting more people in to the session, letter writing mm-hmm. campaigns, um, to, um, you know, seeing what people are interested in and, you know, how can they be connected to and belonged in community and activities, you know, so-called non-formal supports, um, which, you know, I, I say so-called and I'm making air quotes for the people out there in pod land, um, because it, it doesn't matter what the connection is as long as people are connected. So I think about stuff like that and thinking about that, that we may be a stop along the way. Uh, and I like to think of myself maybe more as a facilitator um, than, than the one going to do the stuff that really matters. Um, and, and for me, ultimately, uh, it would be about moving away from therapy to community work. Uh, yeah. And and that's my big queer project is like doing away with therapy and that everything would be community work of some kind. Wonderful. Okay, Julie, last question. Um, and I ask this of everybody, but I'm going to put you on the spot. So <laughs> what is capturing your attention these days besides hockey games? <laughs> uh, uh, um, uh. <laughs> uh, any books, ideas, or even what's, what's your next project or what are you thinking about or that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, well, there's always hockey. <laughs> um, although the, the women's national team did cancel their last game because mm. of our, uh, COVID protocol. Um, I read a lot of fiction. Uh, you know, I, I read a lot of literature and I read a lot of young adult books uh particularly that feature queer and trans young people as protagonists and that are written by queer and trans authors of color um i really invite people to read literature i'd rather the therapists that i supervise or consult 
I would rather they read literature than therapy books, except maybe mine. Um, but it's so that stuff I do, I think in terms of things I would invite people to consider looking at in support of the ideas we've been talking about in my book, uh, Alexi and Tati, my friend who wrote the foreword of this book, I would invite people to have a look at Alex's book, uh, Gender Trauma, as well as all the books Alex has written with Meg John Barker, who I referenced earlier. Hmm. And um, yeah, other than that, I mean, really mostly what I read other than fiction uh, is like understanding authoritarianism and fascism and stuff like that, because I think that's the final frontier. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Wonderful, Julie. Uh, I actually have another last question. How do people find you, get in touch with you, um, and buy the book? <laughs> and I will have a link in the show notes, everybody, but um, would you say something about how to, how to get that or get you or? Yeah. And folks can email me. It's Julie at two, the digit, to not the word to stories.com and my website is two stories.com um the book um yeah, you know, books are sold kind of thing yeah well yeah R routledge published yeah. this um you know i can't tell anybody what to do but you know <laughs> i always like to say friends don't let friends shop at amazon yeah. um but yeah so that's where you can get the book um yeah wonderful Julie, thank you for making the time. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate it, uh, you sharing with our audience today. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Okay, that's our show. And as always, thanks for listening. Uh, links are going to be in the show notes for the books and a lot of Julie's stuff, so please check that out. Uh, support her work and um, support your own practices by supporting her work. And, um, yeah, and as always, come find me on the social medias. Uh, the Radical Therapist on Instagram, Facebook, and if you want stickers, I did some cleaning over the winter break, and I found a bunch of Radical Therapist stickers. So if you'd like some stickers, shoot me an email at theradicaltherapist at gmail.com, and I'll mail them out to you. So uh, as always, uh, this has been the Radical Therapist Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>